bless one another. Father, I do pray that as tonight we're here, uh, that as we go through your word, that, Lord, that you would bless our time together. These psalms were written for us uh, to encourage us and instruct us to uh, bless us. And so we come and we look at these psalms, we read them, knowing that we can benefit greatly from them. We give you this time in the study of your word. As always, help us to be attentive. Help us to just uh, be reminded, just as I had to right before I came up, turn the ringer off the phones and, and be established and get settled into our seats and help us be attentive because uh, as we know that some people have had, uh, many of you, a long day, and uh, you've been rushing and had dinner and rushed here, but Lord, we know it's a good place to be, and we know that uh, you're going to honor that and bless that because we've chosen to be here. And Lord, I pray for those that are listening on live stream. I thank you that they've joined us wherever they're at, that you would just bless them and, and that the technology would work. We thank you for that technology. and being able to upgrade it even this week so more can watch. And, and I pray that it works the way it's supposed to. So, Lord, we give you this time in the study of your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So, as I mentioned to you uh, last time, we're going to start in Psalm 74. As we go into Psalm 74, 75, 76, if we get there tonight, there's going to be mention of the temple and the sanctuary and it's interesting because as you go through the book of Psalms, you know that it's 150 chapters, and there's five books in Psalms, and those five books correlate with the five books, uh, first five books of the Bible. For example, book number one, which is chapters one through 41 of Psalms, correlates with the book of Genesis because in book number one, you see that David writes, for example, in Psalm 19, that the heavens declare your glory, O Lord. So there's a lot mentioned in there about the creation, and of course, Genesis, which means beginnings, records the beginning of time when God created the heavens and the earth. So that's where that correlation is. And then in book number two, which is chapters 42 through 72, that we finished just a couple of weeks ago, that it correlates with the book of Exodus. And the book of Exodus speaks of the deliverance of the children of Israel out of Egypt, of course, as they would come out into the wilderness. And in book number two, you recall that uh, those psalms, a lot of them dealt with, as David penned them, the sweet psalmist of Israel, about deliverance, how he would cry out to the Lord for deliverance from Saul, who was pursuing him early in his life, in the height of his life. And, and then also those psalms that were written during the time that Absalom, his son, tried to take the throne away from him. And, and David is crying out to the Lord during that time. So he's crying out for deliverance from all the men of Israel that had come against him and his enemies. So that's why it correlates in book two to the book of Exodus. Here in book three that we started last week in Psalm 73, as you recall, it was a psalm of Asaph. And I think Psalm 73 is a really important psalm for us to kind of tuck away in our minds and hearts in that time that we feel or perhaps we're ministering to somebody that feels like, why does it seem like the wicked or, you know, the unbelievers are prospering and yet I go through difficulties and hardships and Asaph is struggling. He said, it was even too painful for me to think about it until I went into the sanctuary of the Lord and then I realized that they're in. That their end is that they're not getting away with it. That God is a just God and that their, their end is not going to be good uh, because God is going to bring judgment to those who rebel against him, who, who rebel against uh, the ways of the Lord and him personally. So the sanctuary is mentioned oftentimes in book number three, and we're going to see that here as we go into these chapters tonight that we're going to look at. And it correlates with the book of Leviticus because Leviticus is a book that talks about the priests and serving at the tabernacle. Now, when we talk about the temple, and I know that most of you know this, but some of you are new to Bible study uh, in the Old Testament and New Testament, and you see that word tabernacle or temple, and it's important historically to kind of keep straight all of that because you know that in the wilderness wandering, when the children of Israel did come out into the wilderness, that it was in the book of Exodus that the Lord said to Moses, Moses, I want you to build a tabernacle that I may meet with my people. So they would build that tabernacle. It was made of animal skins, and uh, the 
instructions are given to us there in the book of Exodus. And it's interesting because a lot of people will say, why would God record that all in the book of Exodus? You know, the boards and the cords and, the, and the, the furnishings and all that. But as we went through those chapters, it's not a waste of time looking at that because the tabernacle speaks of Jesus and it points to Jesus. And, and we see that very clearly. It just says the, the shoe bread table is there in the holy place. It, it speaks and points to the fact that Jesus is what? The bread of life. The menorah that was on the left-hand side, the only source of light. And even though on the outward uh, it was plain and animal skins, but inwardly they had a of wood that was there lined up with the pegs, and how they were carefully to make that. And then it was lined with gold, and it was the only source of light there in the tabernacle. It would be very beautiful, wouldn't it? That, that seven branches uh, lit in there uh, with the oil and the only source of light reflecting off uh, the gold walls of, of the tabernacle. And, of course, Jesus, he's the light of the world. We know that those things spoke of Jesus and pointed to Jesus. One door into the tabernacle, Jesus is what? The door to heaven. So all these things that we can gain from. So the tabernacle was there in the wilderness. It was a portable structure. And when the children of Israel had to break camp, the tabernacle was broken down. And the Levites would help carry all the furnishings and the boards and everything else. That's uh, there told to us in the book of Numbers. Well, that tabernacle would eventually go into the promised land when the children of Israel entered in. And it would be at Shiloh for about 400 years and then at Gibeah. And, of course, then the temple would be built as David wanted to build the temple. But God said, no, that you have bloodied hands, David, that is going to be your son Solomon. He's going to build the temple. So Solomon would build the first temple. And as that temple was constructed, it was a magnificent building overlaid with gold. And, and it was uh, one of the, the great wonders of the world as far as architecture. And so they built the, the temple. As you read about in First Kings, there was like 80,000 workers at the quarry and 75,000 workers down there at the Temple Mount site and, and 30,000 that were bringing in the logs and everything from the coast. It was an amazing project that went on for seven years. So the temple, first temple built and completed in about 970 B.C., well, 400 years later, that temple would be destroyed by the Babylonians. And that's what we're going to talk about here in this psalm, in Psalm 74. This psalm was written when Babylon came to Judah and, and destroyed Jerusalem, leveled the city and destroyed the temple. That's the first temple. And it would be destroyed long after David and Solomon had reigned in their kingdom. So then they would go off into captivity for 70 years. And when they came back, Zerubbabel comes back. Uh, Jerusalem's been destroyed. He comes back with Joshua the high priest and the remnant of people, and they begin to build the second temple. So in history, when you read the Old Testament, you have the first temple period. You have the second temple period. And that's where Zerubbabel cleared off the rubble. And they built the second temple. It was a modest temple. It was nothing like Solomon's temple. And that would stand for about 500 years until Herod the Great, right before the birth of Jesus, he was called the Great because he was a great builder. So he expands the second temple, expands the temple mount, makes these huge courtyards. And that temple is standing at the time of Jesus' ministry. So when you read Jesus was at the temple, he's at the temple proper. He's in those big courtyards that were built. And, of course, you know that uh, in the gospel accounts, when it gives us the account of the Olivet Discourse, that the disciples were marveling at the huge ornate stones that were used. That you can see some of them even today, the Herodian stones that made up the second temple. Well, Jesus said that the time's going to come when not stone, one stone's going to be left upon another. So in 70 AD, here comes the Romans. They leveled Jerusalem. They destroyed a second temple, tear it apart stone by stone. And so the Jews are dispersed at that time. And there has not been a temple in Jerusalem for 2,000 years. You see, sometimes Christians think that there's a temple there. There's no temple in Jerusalem right now. It hasn't been. 
But there's going to be a third temple, and that's the tribulation temple that's yet to be constructed. Actually, it's, it's started to be built. And what I mean by that is if you go to Jerusalem today, they'll show you when you go to the Temple Institute how they've made the seven-branch menorah and the altar of shewbread. They've made the altar of incense. They have all the priestly robes ready to go and the trumpets and all the furnishings. All they need is permission to build a temple. Well, we know that's not going to happen until the Antichrist comes on the scene, according to Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. He makes a peace treaty with Israel for seven years, and that's going to enable them to actually construct the temple. So that third temple is called the Tribulation Temple. And that's where the temple in Jerusalem, the Antichrist is going to go in, and he's going to desecrate that temple, set up an image of himself, and command the world to worship him. Well, that temple's only going to be around for a very short time because when Jesus comes back and we come back with him, then that tribulation temple is going to be destroyed. And then there's the fourth temple that's mentioned in the scripture that is the millennium temple. That's going to be magnificent. It's going to be huge. And when Jesus comes back to rule and reign, that we are going to come up to the temple and we're going to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. It's going to be glorious. It's spoken of in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48. So next week, you're going to get quizzed on this again, all right? And so just so you know, historically and biblically, the four temples that are mentioned... Here in Psalm 74 is the first temple that is being destroyed in 586 B.C. It was an awful time. Nebuchadnezzar came in, and he would crush Jerusalem. And it was Jeremiah that was prophesying during this time that he had come to Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, and said, Zedekiah, do not rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. If you do, then it's going to be death and devastation. It's going to be destruction beyond anything you can comprehend. And Jeremiah was one that he used illustrations. And he took the leaders and he took them out there of the city gates. And they're overlooking the Valley of Gehenna. But the Valley of Gehenna is to the south. And that's where they would burn the trash. And, and that's where, during some of their times, under the reign of Ahaz and Manasseh, that they would actually burn their children in the arms of Moloch. That's how far they've gotten away from the Lord. And Jeremiah says, you need to turn back to the Lord. And he takes a clay pot and he throws it down and it breaks. And he says, this is what's going to happen unless you, the leaders and the nation, repent. And so those warnings would be unheard. And all of a sudden, in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar surrounds the city. He breaks through and there were... Tens of thousands that were killed, as Jeremiah had spoke about. So this is happening during this time. Now, in Psalm 74, we read in the title, A Contemplation of Asaph. Now, last time, you recall, you might be looking at your notes, saying, hey, Pastor Jeff, uh, I've been around the block a little bit as far as knowing some of this stuff in the Bible. And Asaph was a worship leader, David, right? David had worship leaders. One was Asaph. He had a brother named He-Man. And then Jedutha was another one. And they were the main worship leaders under David as he would set up worship there in the temple for Solomon to have. But Asaph was living around 1000 B.C. This is 586 B.C. So you might be thinking, how can that be? How can it be Asaph? Well, they would have these choirs there at that time, a choir of Asaph, that choir of He-Man and uh, Jaduthan, and, and those choirs would go on generation after generation after generation. So this is a descendant of Asaph that is writing this. And we do read at this time that as the temple's being destroyed, Solomon's temple, O oh God, why have you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? In verse 2, remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, the tribe of your inheritance, which you have redeemed, this Mount Zion, which you have dwelt. Mount Zion is a reference to Jerusalem, where the temple was. Why have you cast us off forever? Why, why your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Why is this happening? Have you ever asked, when you've had difficulty in your life, why, Lord? Why? It's a question that a lot of times that we can ask the Lord. 
And here in this circumstance, the psalmist, as he goes through it, he's asking, why, Lord? Well, we know why, because of the covenant, the breaking of the covenant that God made with Moses as the Moses brought the children of Israel there to Mount Sinai, and the mountain shook, and, and I'm going to speak to my people, Moses. And, and God spoke to Moses and gave him the covenant and said, if you guys, when you go into the promised land, if you worship me and follow after me, everything's going to be good. You're going to have crops, and there's going to be blessing, and, and I'll defend you, and you'll defeat the enemy, and you'll be planted in the land. But if you forsake me, then what's going to happen is there's going to be famine and plagues. And there's going to be the enemy that's going to come in and take you away into captivity. And that's exactly what was happening here. Over and over again, we see that they were warned by the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel was prophesying during this time as well. And and the years before, the minor prophets, as you go through the minor prophets of the Old Testament, they were warning the house of Israel and the house of Judah, turn back to the Lord or there's going to be serious consequences because of it. And you see, they thought because they had Jerusalem and they had the temple that everything was going to be okay. And Jeremiah records that actually in his book. They would say, we have the temple. Nothing's going to happen to us. You know, everything looks good. And here's what we need to really consider, especially in the day in which we are living in. Because as we look at this, I'll I'll read it to you in Jeremiah chapter 7. And and you can read it, you know, when you go home and read the chapter. But they were trusting in lying words. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord and all you of Judah who enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. And then thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. And do not trust in these lying words saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. Hey, the temple, the temple, the temple of the Lord, nothing's going to happen to us. And as you go through that chapter, one of the things that you'll notice is that there was a form of religiousness. As you go through, even in the days of Ahaz, I was reading today in 2 Kings chapter 16, how Ahaz, he was one of the worst kings that that Judah ever had. He was an idol worshiper into astrology. He was the one that was having uh, the god Moloch there in the valley of Gehenna where they would burn their children on the arms of Moloch. He was a wicked, terrible, terrible king. And what happened was that it was Syria and the ten northern tribes of Israel that wanted to come down to Judah and kill Ahaz and put their own king on the throne and then try to fight the Assyrians. So Ahaz, what he did was he got the Assyrians to come and kill the king of Syria. And really, those two kings ended up coming to nothing. So what happened was Ahaz, he goes up to Damascus. The king of Assyria sitting there on the throne in Damascus. He had killed the king of Syria. He's sitting there, you know, enjoying his, his victory. And Ahaz goes up to pay a visit to thank him. And Ahaz, what he sees is that the king of Assyria has this idol that's there. And he says, I like that. I like that idol that's really neat. He calls for the high priest to come make a copy of that idol to put it in the temple in Jerusalem. And he goes back to Jerusalem and he burns incense to the idol. And he gives up peace offerings and burnt offerings. He was very religious. But he was terribly wrong. You see, we need to be careful that we don't bring in the things of the world into this temple of God. And we can easily do that if we're not careful, because it looks cool, it's very relevant, but it's not pleasing to the Lord. You see, as we go to the New Testament, there's also another temple that is mentioned, and that is you and me. A living temple. We're living stones being fitted together, as, as Peter would write, uh, into this holy habitation. And Paul would write the same thing in the book of Ephesians, as we saw. And this holy temple is holy to God. And we don't want to bring anything in that maybe 
seems cool or very relevant or, or whatever, but is not pleasing to the Lord. It's contrary to God's word. We don't want to defile the temple. And we don't want to come to where we're trusting, you know, in other things other than the Lord himself. We don't want to be trusting in buildings. We don't want to be trusting in numbers, in money. We don't want to be trusting in any of those things. Even though it's very, very wonderful to have a building and to have a budget and, and your support doing the work of the kingdom. But I hope you're understanding, and I'm trying to articulate, we want to put our trust in the Lord and please him in everything that we do here. And they were saying, it doesn't matter. We have the temple. We're safe. And then all of a sudden, why is this happening? Galatians chapter 6, you know it, says, Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, so shall he reap. If you sow seeds to the flesh of the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. If you sow seeds to the spirit of the spirit, you'll reap everlasting life. That's the spiritual law for every single one of us. It's a spiritual law for us as a church. Because you see, individually, we're the temple of God as well. And we're not to be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever it is that we sow, shall we reap. So the decisions and the things that we're doing and, and, and what we get involved in, the philosophy that we take in and live by, there's going to be a harvest that's going to come up. We're sowing seeds. And so we want to make sure that we're sowing seeds to everlasting life, to the Spirit and following after Him. And so here was the destruction of the temple in verse 3. Lift up your feet to the perpetual desolations. The enemy has damaged everything in the sanctuary. Your enemies war in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their banners for signs. The Babylonians were setting up their banners in God's holy city. It was a terrible time in their history. It was battle. It was destruction. The enemy coming against them. You know, we need to be careful. Because the enemy wants to come against us. You know, one of the things that the Lord's put on my heart, I really believe that the enemy is going to throw everything he can at Calvary Chapel Greeley. He's going to throw everything at us that he can, this temple of God, that come against us. Because any church that is standing on the truth of God's word, that is standing for righteousness, is going to be attacked by the world and is going to be attacked by the enemy. So here was this destruction going on, trying to figure out why is this happening. The psalmist goes on in verse 5, they seem like men who lift up axes among the thick trees, and now they break it um, down. It's carved work all at once. With axes and hammers, they have set fire to your sanctuary. They have defiled the dwelling place of your name to the ground. So they were burning the temple down. It's interesting, if you go to Jerusalem today, in the second temple... And the huge Herodian stones that they use, you can go into a place that's called the rabbinical tunnels. And it goes underneath, and the foundational stones that are huge, some of those foundational stones are as big as this back wall here. And they're, they're about 600 tons or something like that. They don't know how they got them in place. But those Herodian stones, you can go in some of those places and actually touch the soot that was burning on the stones when the Romans came in and burnt the temple down. It's absolutely amazing. It's like you're touching history. So the stones would burn. They set it to the fire. They tore the sanctuary down. They, they defiled the dwelling place of your name to the ground. Verse 8, they said in their hearts, let us destroy them altogether. They have burned up all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There's no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long. Oh God, how long will the adversary reproach? Will the enemy blaspheme your name forever? We see that the psalmist continues in verse 11. Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand? Take it out of your bosom and destroy them. For God is my king from old, uh, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea serpents in the waters. You broke the heads of the Leviathan in pieces and gave him as food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. Now, a couple things here. It's the psalmist is acknowledging that, God, you are all-powerful, but why don't you do something? You're all-powerful. You divided the seas. Now, verse 14 is kind of an interesting verse. Remember the Leviathan? We talked about the Leviathan in the book of Job. It, it was a sea monster. 
Actually, a description given to us in the book of Job, kind of like a dragon, a sea monster uh, that Job talks about. And here in verse 14, it says, You broke the heads of the Leviathan in pieces and gave him his food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. What's that all about? It's like, did he take the Leviathan and butcher it and give it to the children of Israel out there in the wilderness? It's one of those things. I've always said, you've heard me say this before. I kind of got a file um, that I have questions I want to ask God, and I put it in the, in the file, and this is one of them. What's, what's up with verse 14 here? Did you feed the Leviathan to the children of Israel? I don't know. But here's the thing. Here's the psalmist saying, you are powerful. You've worked for us before. You, you've opened you know, the sea by your strength. You've, you've brought salvation to us. Why aren't you working right now, Lord? Take your hands out of your pockets and do something, as we see here in verse 11. You know that imagery of somebody having their hands in their pockets. You know, my dad would say, get your hands out of your pocket. Get something done. Quit standing around. Or maybe if you're, you know, at work or had to tell a worker, you know, you need to get your hands out of your pocket. Come on, let's get going. So that's the picture that we see. It's kind of like God has his hands in his pocket. He's not going to do anything. And I'm sure that perhaps for some of us, we felt that way at some time in our life, haven't we? Lord, I have no question that you're all-powerful. You can work. I think what we struggle with sometimes is, are you willing to work? Are you willing to work on my behalf, Lord? And it seems like you got your hands in your pockets and you're not wanting to do anything, kind of like you don't care or whatever the case may be for us. And know this, that God is working. He doesn't, up there in heaven, looking at you with his hands in his pockets, wondering, what do I do? Look at the situation they're in. How am I going to work in this? He's working, and sometimes we have to wait on the Lord. And we've talked quite a bit about waiting on the Lord going through these psalms. But waiting on Him, trusting in Him, resting in what He's doing in our lives. But know this, whatever difficulties or, or challenges that you have presently, the Lord doesn't have His hands in His pockets. He is working and to trust in him day by day in what he's doing in your life. And the psalmist goes on to say in verse 15, you broke open a fountain and the flood, and you dried up mighty rivers, and the day is yours, the night also is yours. You have prepared the light and the sun, and you have set all the borders of the earth. You have made summer and winter. And so, uh, again, speaking of the power of the Lord, you, you've made summer, you've made winter. Remember this, that the enemy, verse 18, has reproached, O Lord, and that a foolish people has blasphemed your name. Oh, do not deliver the life of your turtle dove to the wild beast, like in people, it's like a turtle dove and, and a wild beast, like, like a lion, like a bear, like a wolf. One of the things, if you've ever seen uh, we, we've gone up to Yellowstone in the spring when you see the wolves come. They're, they're killers, and they go after the little baby elk and the little baby bison. And, and that's a, kind of what I picture as I read this, ready to rip them to shreds, to eat them up. That was the Babylonians coming against God's people, turtle doves, a mighty beast of the Babylonians. And their symbolism, of course, was the lion. And then verse 20, have respect to the covenant for the dark places of the earth are full of the haunts of cruelty. And do not let the oppressed return to shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Kind of interesting here as you read this, Judah is portraying that they are innocent here. And, and Lord, have respect for the covenant. Have respect for the covenant. They didn't have respect for the covenant. There was a form of religiousness that you see. But it was a false religiousness. And it was false worship. And there was disobedience. And God had warned them and warned them and warned them. And so we need to make sure that we understand this. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows shall he reap. And know that none of us are excused from that. You see, sometimes Christians think, well, you know, I can go ahead and do this because it feels right, or, you know, I'm, I, I think maybe this is what I should do, and it's in direct violation to what God's Word has to say, and then they're wondering, scratching their heads, or they're mourning, or they're in sorrow because of the consequences that they're experiencing. 
And that's why it's the Lord that comes along and says, do not get involved with sin. I don't want you to get involved in this thing because it's going to hurt you. And it's going to do you in and wipe you out. And you're going to get hurt. So we need to make sure that we understand that the commandments and the instructions of the Lord given to us are for our good and for our benefit, that we can experience that abundant life that he has for us, that it may be well with us. So they didn't understand it, and he's, the psalmist is crying out, and then desiring also for uh, God to, um, as he says here, that God's glory, his name, um, be you know defended. Arise, O God, plead your own cause, verse 22. Remember how the foolish man reproaches you daily. Do not forget the voice of your enemies and the tumult of those who rise up against you increases continually. So, Lord, according to your name, may your glory be preserved, Lord. And so the psalmist here, as it ends here, crying out not to forget them. I want you to know this. Even though the psalmist feels this way, you know, he's crying out, why are we cast off? Why are we thrown down? You know, why are we, are we forgotten and forsaken? Listen, the Lord has not forsaken you. And there are times when we go through the difficulties where you can feel like the Lord has forsaken you. And he promises Jesus, I will never leave you or forsake you. And that's a promise that you can stand on tonight. So Psalm 74, speaking of the time when the temple was destroyed, Psalm 75, as we read to the chief musician, said to do not destroy a psalm of Asaph, a song. This is a time about 150 years previous to Psalm 74. The Psalm 75 has taken place at another time when the temple was being threatened, and that was when? You know, when the Assyrians came down. As the Assyrians would come down, and, and you read in Isaiah 37 and 38 and 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19, you read about how the Assyrians came. And keep this in mind as we go through this psalm, that here is Shennacherib, uh, the most powerful man on the face of the earth. He brings his mighty Assyrians. They were worse than the Babylonians. And they had already taken the ten northern tribes off into captivities, put fish hooks in their mouths. And drug them off. That's how brutal they were. And they come into Judah and they take captive some of the cities. And they come to Jerusalem, God's holy city. And they surround Jerusalem with 185,000 soldiers. And there's Shennacherib and his, and his general. And they're hurling threats at Hezekiah, the godly king. Hezekiah, who is this God that you're trusting in? Why are you telling the people to trust in, in your God? No other gods of the other nations have been able to withstand us, the mighty Assyrians. And he bullied and he threatened and he told them to surrender. And, and the people shook and they trembled and they began to pray. And Hezekiah took that threatening letter that was written to him and laid it out in the temple and the elders. And they prayed to the Lord. So that's a scary thing. Can you imagine getting up and the people are on the wall and they're looking at this massive army? of 185,000 soldiers at least. And they were not nice. They would torture the people. They were brutal. And how fear had struck their hearts in it. This is the time where this is taking place at this time. So here we see that the psalmist is writing, do not destroy here. But also it speaks of Jesus when he comes back. And he's going to rule and reign. So let's make the correlations here in Psalm 75. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your wondrous works. Declare that your name is near. When I chose the proper time, it will judge uprightly. The earth and all its inhabitants are dissolved. I will set up its pillars firmly. So we see here that it speaks about how that it was the Assyrians coming, knowing that God was going to judge the Assyrians, because you know how the story ended, that as that night, after Hezekiah prayed in the elders, that God dispatched, dispatched an angel that came and destroyed 185,000 Assyrians. I mean, that's a lot of people. And they woke up and they looked out. And there the Assyrian army was wiped out, and Shennacherib went back home, and he ended up being killed 
by his own family. And that was pretty much the end of the Assyrian Empire, the power of the Assyrian Empire. It, it would decline, and then the Babylonian Empire would rise to power after that. But here, as it is speaking of, God's going to judge. In his time, he's going to judge. And we know that Christ is going to come in his time, not in our time. He is just, and he is righteous and true, and his timing is perfect. Now, I cry out, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. I am ready for the Lord to come back. I don't know about you, but I am. And I'm sure that many of you are as well. We should be as Christians ready for the return of the Lord, but he's going to come in his time. And I get excited when I read sometimes the news. Uh, Jerry and I were talking a little bit about it before service, and I've talked to a few other people how the Russians are in Syria right now. And as you look at that, it's like, wow, just lining up, just as Ezekiel 38 said, it's going to happen. And, you know, here come the Russians and telling the Americans to back off. And the tension is getting more and more and deeper and deeper uh, in the Middle East. And it's going to come to pass exactly as the Bible said. New Year's Eve, if we make it to New Year's Eve, the Lord doesn't come back before then. We'll do that prophecy update, and we're going to be looking at all of that very, very carefully. But we need to know what's taking place because I see it, and I think, wow, Lord, it's happening the way that you said it would, the signs, the, uh, the events according to Scripture. And your coming is very near. Lord, come quickly. But he's going to come in his perfect timing. He is just in his right. In the meantime, he's got things for you and me to do. So here we see that there is this, this threatening of the Assyrians. And God is there. He's just and in his time. And in those times, listen, that the Shennacheribs are attacking you. What is it that you do? Murmur, murmur, complain, complain. May we learn from the psalmist. It says, we give thanks to you, O God, we give thanks for your wondrous works. I want to be more like that. Because when I feel the heat of the Assyrians or the threat of the Shennacheribs in my own life, I have a tendency to murmur, murmur, complain, complain. Snivel and gripe and complain and all of this rather than giving thanks to the Lord. And the reason that we can give thanks to the Lord, why? Because he's the righteous judge. And he's going to come and set all things right. And we're going to go be with him forever. And I can't wait for that time. And in verse 4, the psalmist said, I said to the boastful, do not steal boastfully. And to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with a stiff neck. A horn speaks of power, doesn't it? Defiance. The nations of the world are, are going to come in defiance against Jesus when he returns. Listen, don't expect the world to be more friendly towards Jesus. I think the world is going to get more hostile towards Jesus as we get closer to the return of the Lord. And we know that in Psalm chapter 2, it speaks of it when, when Jesus comes back, the psalmist is asking, why do the nations plot a vain thing against the Lord, the anointed one? The Assyrians are there saying, you know, who are you, Hezekiah, to tell the people to trust in God? Who are you to, to, to look to him and not surrender? Your God cannot help you. Have you ever heard those words? in a difficult situation that you find yourself in, and people are saying, you know, who are you to trust in God? You need to do this, and you need to go that way, and you need to take this advice. Don't trust in your God. Don't trust in the Word of God. Don't trust in that pastor, what he told you, in your, you know, church service. You need to be realistic. You need to do this. And those voices will come against us, try to confuse us. When we need to be trusting the Lord, Hezekiah and them didn't say anything. 
They went to prayer, and we need to trust in the Lord and go to prayer because he's the one that delivers us. But the voices are going to come. And then in verse 6, for exaltation comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. For the hand of the Lord, there is a cup, and the wine is red, and it's fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely it's dredge shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. I like Verse 6, I have it underlined in my Bible. For exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. Where did the Assyrians come from? The north. Think about it. They came from the north. You see, when the Assyrians come against us in our life from the north, oftentimes we'll look to the east, to the south, to the west. Psalmist says, don't do that. Help isn't going to come from there. We're to look up and look to him. Something similar was said to the house of of Israel in Isaiah chapter 30. It's something that perhaps I've quoted to you and talking with you, but it is a chapter that I refer to oftentimes when the Assyrians were threatening the house of, of Israel before this psalm is written here. And in the house of Israel, the ten northern tribes, they're going to look to Egypt, to the west, to the south. They're going to look to Egypt to help them. They weren't looking to the Lord. And so Isaiah here, as he writes, the Lord says, Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord. This is Isaiah 30. Who take counsel, but not of me. Who devise plans, but not of my spirit. They add sin to sin, who walk to go down to Egypt and have not asked my advice, to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame. We're going to go to the world. Woe to the rebellious children of Israel. We're not going to go to the Lord. We're going to go to the world They were looking to those fast Arabian horses, and you read the psalm, and those fast Arabian horses aren't going to help you. But in returning and rest, you shall be saved, and quietness and confidence shall be your strength. And therefore, the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you, and blessed are all those who wait on the Lord. And then the psalmist says this, that he promises that he'll be And you will hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Walk in it. You got difficulties in your life, decisions that have to be made. Trouble coming from the north. You look to the Lord. And you look from counsel from the Lord. And you wait on the Lord. And that's where your strength is going to be. And your deliverance. And your peace. And your wisdom. And listen, he promises, he promises Isaiah chapter 30, as you go to him in quietness and strength, as you go to him in counsel, he promises to be that voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it, go to the left, go to the right. So this is what you do. You spend time with the Lord. And you seek the Lord in his word. And I encourage all of us to do this. While the weather especially is still nice and it's fall, maybe on a, you know, evening or early morning or perhaps on a weekend, a Sunday after church, go take a walk. Take your Bible. Take a pen and a pad and go get away. Or go in your room, just get away for a little bit. And say, Lord, I've got this hanging over my head. I've got these decisions to make. I've got this difficulty. I'm confused about that. I don't know what to do. And I've heard from him. I've heard from her. I've heard from them. I've heard from Pastor Jeff. Now I need to hear from you. I need to hear from you. And he promises as you do that and you seek his word... And those things that he prompts on your heart, you can write them down, that he's going to be a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. But you got to go to him. you got to go to him.
And he's the one that exalts and puts down another. Hey, hey don't worry about Shanachrib. I'm going to take him down is what I'm going to do. And the Lord did do that. And whatever Shanachrib is coming against you, you commit it to the Lord. You commit it to the Lord. We don't have to try to exalt ourselves. We don't have to try to promote ourselves. Just trusting in the Lord. Daniel said in chapter 2, verse 21, to Nebuchadnezzar, hey, he removes kings and he raises up kings. The Lord lifts up the humble, Psalm 147. He casts down the wicked to the ground. The Lord's going to work for you and get you where you need to be. And he's going to work in your life in a way that's glorious as you trust in him and go to him. So I love this verse. It's not from the west nor from the south. It's not from the east. It's from him. God is the judge. He puts down one. He exalts another. He's going to put down Shennacherib. In the hands of the Lord there is a cup. Reminds me of of Revelation chapter 14 verse 10. the, The cup of indignation spoken of as judgment will come when Jesus Christ uh, we'll come back. There's going to be a judgment on a Christ-rejected world that we read about. Verse 9, But I will declare forever, I will sing praises to the God of Jacob, and all the horns of the wicked I will also cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be exalted. And so horn again speaks of power. But I will declare as for me, the psalmist is saying, I will declare forever what the praises of God not murmur, murmur, complain, complain. The praises of God, I will declare. We need to make a choice. Lord, I'm going to declare. I'm going to make a choice that I'm going to worship you no matter what's coming down, what's coming against me. I'm going to trust in you and go to you. Quickly, Psalm 76, just a couple minutes to the chief musician on a string instruments, a song, Asaph, a song. So here, this is again concerning the Assyrians surrounding Jerusalem, but is praising God for what he has done and delivering them. And in Judah, God is known, verse 1, his name is great in Israel. In Salem, that's the name for Jerusalem, also is his tabernacle. And his dwelling place in Zion, and there he broke the arrows of the bow and the shield and sword of battle as one angel. One angel. Games and wipes out that whole army. I suspect that it was Gabriel. His Gabriel's associate, not Gabriel, excuse me, Michael. Gabriel's associated with messages of the Messiah. Michael is associated with actually doing battle on behalf of Israel. He's mentioned in the book of Daniel. So Michael, perhaps he was the one that dispatched, but broke the arrows and the shields and the swords. In verse 4, you are more glorious and excellent than mountains of prey. Uh, the stout-hearted were plundered. They have sunk into their sleep. And none of the mighty men have found the use of their hands. They went limp, man. They fell asleep. They went limp. They couldn't raise their hands. All kinds of stuff was happening. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both the chariot and the horse were cast into a deep sleep. So the horses were cast into a deep sleep. This is kind of a uh, description of what was taking place. You yourself are to be feared and who may stand in your presence when once you are angry. You've caused judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still when God arose to judgment to deliver all the oppressed of the earth. And surely the wrath of man shall praise you. With the remainder of wrath you shall gird yourself. And make vows to the Lord your God and pay them. Let all who are around him bring presents to him who ought to be feared. He shall cut off the spirit of princes and he awesome to the kings of the earth. As I read this psalm, number one, God wants you to know him, verses one through three. Second of all, verses four through six. Not only does he want you to know him, but trust in him. Thirdly, in verses seven through nine, we read, that we're to fear him. It's a major theme that we see in the book of Psalms, to fear the Lord, to look to him. And then fourthly, obey him. Obey the Lord and see the wondrous works of the Lord in your life. Well, we'll close there tonight, Father, as we thank you for these three Psalms that we went over. And thank you for us just coming together and looking at these Psalms. And Lord, knowing that that you desire to just work in our lives. You haven't cast us off, but you do call us to obedience. 
And Lord, I just want to pray if, if we're here and maybe perhaps you're bringing instruction to us or whatever, that we would take heed to it. We wouldn't be deceived. God is not mocked. We know that whatever we sow shall we reap. And you're incredibly gracious and good. We know that. But Lord, we don't want to go in a direction that's going to hurt us. But to walk closely with you, to trust in you, and to seek counsel from you. And Lord, knowing that you're the righteous judge that works in our lives. So Lord, I pray that we would trust in you for everything. When the difficulties and the troubles and the confusion and the challenges come into our lives. Father, I do want to pray tonight for anyone that is here that, Lord, might be listening on live stream, perhaps in this building, that you haven't really made a commitment to Christ. That Jesus Christ came and died for you. That you might have salvation. It's a free gift as you come in faith. You can't work for it. But there's one thing that the Lord asks of you, and that is your heart. For you to give him your life and your heart, to confess that you're a sinner in need of him. To have that cry in your heart of, I need Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. To be forgiven. And know that as you cry out to him, that he hears you and receives you. And Lord, I just pray if there's any heart that is in that place right now here, that they would know right where they're sitting, that they can be forgiven. You're not accepting a church or a pastor. It's Jesus as your Lord and Savior to be forgiven and a new creation in Christ. All things become new. And knowing that you have the hope of heaven. Today is the day of salvation. Don't wait. That's what the enemy wants you to do. Wait. Don't wait. Do it tonight. Come to him. And you pray right where you're sitting, Jesus, I come and I ask that you be my personal Lord and Savior. Me a sinner, I confess it. And I believe you died on Calvary's cross for my sins. And you're alive, risen from the grave because you're alive in my heart right now. I ask that you sit upon the throne of my life as Lord and Savior. Thank you for forgiving me and help me to look to you each and every day as I surrender my life to you. Father, I pray if anybody prayed that prayer that you would bless them. Fill them with your love right now. That they would leave this place rejoicing in you. Father, I pray for all of us that we go away knowing of your faithfulness and goodness. That there isn't any problem that we face that you can't work. Or difficulties that we find ourselves in that you can't rescue, strengthen, give direction, provide. You're everything that we need. So Lord, I pray you take your people home safely tonight. We look forward to gathering again when we gather on Sunday. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Sunday, we're going to be finishing Ephesians on Sunday. We're in the last part of Ephesians talking about putting on the whole armor of God. Very important lessons because we do spiritual battle. It is a battle out there, isn't it? One of the things about Moses in Numbers chapter 31, the Lord came to Moses and said, Moses, I got one more battle.